Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and it's my great privilege to welcome you to this, the third of our summer lecture series in this, the 35th anniversary year of Rare Book School. Our speaker today is one of our own. Amy Ogden is an associate professor in the Department of French here at UVA. Her scholarly work focuses on saints' lives written in French verse in the 12th and the 13th centuries, particularly on how poets grappled with gender and with eternal problems such as grief, pain, and conflicting affections. Good thing that we don't have any of those problems today. Professor Ogden is the co-editor and translator of Robert Wace's Hagiographical Works, published by Brill in 2013, and the author of Hagiography Romance and the Vie de Saint Ephesine from Princeton, 2003. She is currently com completing an edition and English translation of the Euphrosine and working at UVA's IATH, the Institute for Advanced Technology and the Humanities, to develop an online resource called Lives of the Saints, the Medieval French Hagiography Project. And I understand that Mr. Spielberg has expressed acute interest in that. <laughs> Among her celebrated courses here at UVA are Love in Medieval Literature, Pregnant Kings and Transvestite Saints, Gender in the Middle Ages, and Medieval Beasts. Please join me in welcoming Professor Amy Ogden. Thank you, Michael, and thank you to the Rare Book School for inviting me. It's a real privilege and a pleasure to be here with you tonight. I'm afraid I'm not talking about pregnant kings, and the manuscript that I'm going to be talking about may not at first glance seem quite as exciting as that topic, but I promise you, it is. There is a lot about the manuscript known as Bodleian Library Canonici Miscellaneous 74 that might explain why very few people have paid any attention whatsoever to it. First, it is absolutely and stubbornly anonymous. Not one of the seven texts in the volume identifies its author, its patron, or its place of composition. Although considerable evidence suggests that the manuscript was made around the year 1200, over the following 400 years, no owners left any identifying marks in it, and it doesn't appear in library records before the early 19th century. So there's no suggestion that anyone important ever had anything to do with it. Second, it's very plain, not a luxury item, with no images whatsoever in it. The decorated and plain initials, while lovely, aren't particularly special, and I do apologize if you saw a poster for this talk with a potentially misleading image. I promise it's not entirely false advertising. Less, the apparent emphasis of the manuscript's contents is not likely to attract many modern admirers. How to live virtuously so that after death, you can avoid the terrors of hell. In a word, Kanachi Miscellaneous 74 seems unexceptional, plain, and pious. But in spite of all of these marks against it, I'm going to argue that the volume is both deeply interesting and useful. 
not only for reaching a more nuanced understanding of medieval culture, but also for rethinking common modern perspectives on living and dying. All of its texts are saints' lives in French, and as I've argued elsewhere, medieval French saints' lives offer a largely unexplored treasure trove of evidence that can challenge much of what we think we know about the Middle Ages. Hugely popular, these texts often articulate the common ground between the wider population and the preachers and clerics who conveyed church doctrine to them. The lives express ideas about how to live that were acceptable and appealing enough that the authorities did not condemn them and the people readily enjoyed them. And these medieval ideas are often much less foreign and much more complex and attractive than modern people usually expect. In the case of the canonical anthology, the anonymous compiler, as I hope to prove, created a compassionate and subtle guide for people to think about death and to develop strategies for reducing the suffering associated with mortality. Strategies that are not so very different from some that are gaining momentum in current culture. I will begin by showing how the contents and the construction of the manuscript reflect the anonymous compiler's deliberate attempt to create a meaningful collection of texts that explore ideas about death. I will then take a moment to discuss our dominant modern ideas about dying and suffering and how they limit our ability to appreciate the usefulness of medieval death literature, such as the works in the Kanachi anthology. And I will propose some ways, um, some of the principles of the modern uh, palliative care movement and how they offer subtle ways of understanding suffering that open up new ways of reading the medieval texts. In the final part of my talk, I'll focus on one of the works in Kanachi Miscellaneous 74 to show how it puts into practice many of the same principles and strategies as palliative care transforming the manuscript into a manual for living and dying well that might just be of use even today. So to begin, I'll argue that despite its modern name, Canonici Miscellaneous 74 is anything but a miscellany. As you can see, the texts are all in French verse, and they all treat religious themes, mostly through narrative. Even the two works that don't appear to be saints' lives are not at all, in fact, random editions. The moral poem contains two short saints' lives, those of saints, saints Moses and Thesis, and the copyist broke off immediately after Thesis, not completing the, the poem, which suggests that the lives were the primary interest for him. The poem on the Last Judgment, at the end, does not include the biography of any saints, but we can see its fittingness to conclude the volume from its form, like the opening text Alexis, the last judgment poem is written in 12-syllable lines on the same assonance, and the same verse form is used for the moral poem in Euphrosyne too. The specific word choices of the first line of the last judgment poem, which you can see down there, further link it to texts throughout the codex. And I have a sneaking suspicion that this text, although it was copied um, two more times, or survives in two more copies, may have been actually written for this codex, but I, I can't prove that yet. So the construction of the volume shows that the textual coherence is no accident. The Canonici anthology is an assemblage of previously created manuscripts with additional texts copied at the end. The differences between the pieces are evident from their different scripts and layouts, as well as from the binding evidence. You can see that like most contemporary manuscripts, the volume is made up of booklets or choirs that are sewn together. I marked one of them off there. The first scribe wrote the first three texts, The Life of St. Alexis, The Moral Poem, and The Life of St. Juliana. Uh, 
ending with a choir marked in red up there that's shorter than the preceding ones, six folios instead of eight, and whose final two folios are blank and not completely ruled, suggesting that originally that was the end of one manuscript. These texts all begin with rubrics in red, but the next section, containing the lives of Euphrosyne and Mary the Egyptian, do not have original rubrics, and they were copied by a different scribe, although the hands are not dramatically different. I've given you a couple examples that can show you how close they are, but hopefully also the, the differences. This section's choir signatures, the small signs that are used to bind the booklets in the right order, also reveal that it originally belonged to another manuscript. The first section has choir signatures beginning with Roman numeral one, mostly on the front or the recto of the first folio of each choir, running up to Roman numeral six. The numbering of the second section seems to restart with a small prime symbol to distinguish it from the first system. The second section also ends in a small choir, just two folios, but here there are no blank lines, with the next text copied immediately after the life of St. Mary the Egyptian. And this final section, containing the life of St. Andrew the Apostle in the Last Judgment poem, may be in the same script as the first section, or it might be a third hand, and scholars disagree about this. There is, as we can see, abundant and coherent evidence to show that someone thoughtfully assembled this group of texts, that this person chose to include only one text that is not a saint's life, but that echoes the earlier biographies, that she or he placed this text at the end of the volume, and that this text explicitly announces its subject as the last judgment. The juiz is the last judgment. All these factors strongly suggest that the Last Judgment poem is there to encourage certain ways of thinking about mortality and to invite readers to consider how the preceding texts treat death. Because the Last Judgment poem seems so clearly to function as a commentary on the other works, and because the ideas about death seem at first so alien to us, I'm going to focus on it this evening. By way of literary historical context, I'll just say that it was composed in the Walloon region, modern-day Belgium, sometime in the 12th century, and it survives in three manuscripts, as I mentioned. It's received hardly any modern attention, although it has piqued the passing interest of a number of eminent scholars, including Gaston Paris, who characterized it as a bizarre composition and a very rare form. It's short, just over 400 lines, and as I noted above, it's assonated, so the lines conclude on the same vowel sound, but they don't necessarily rhyme. This is the form used for Old French epic, although usually broken up into different um, um, lengths of stanzas. What makes this poem rare is that the entire poem, almost the entire poem, is assonated on the same sound. Nearly every line ends with the sound E. I think that the main reason it hasn't received much attention, though, is that it certainly seems at first reading incoherent, as Paul Mayer remarked. As the schema of the poem shows, however, despite the poem's lack of clear structure, it unquestionably deals with suffering, mortality, and morality. The only other scholar to write about the Canonici Anthology as a whole volume is Emma Campbell, and she, like me, argues that the last judgment poem can serve as a guidance for reading the preceding works in ways that draw connections from the saintly models to the text's audience. But Campbell reads the manuscript as having a punitive agenda and characterizes the last judgment poem as playing a game of spiritual stick and carrot. For her, the poem serves to form a community that is ultimately encouraged, even forced, to recognize itself as a penitential body caught within a judicial scheme. 
a community of people who are spiritually degenerate, she says, and in need of discipline. Campbell's reading of the Last Judgment poem and the anthology, I believe, reflects a broader attitude among scholars about the extensive surviving medieval death literature. And here I turn to my second point, that that dominant modern ideas about death and suffering limit our ability to appreciate the complexity and usefulness of medieval writings on mortality, but that the increasingly popular alternative approaches lead to different ways of understanding the past and its artifacts. Esther Cohen's tremendously broad and rich study of pain in the Middle Ages illustrates the modern view of medieval attitudes on suffering as deeply alien to our own. As she puts it, late medieval pain culture was characterized by the tremendous positive significance identified in pain. Suffering was not to be dismissed, vanquished, or transcended. Suffering was to be felt with an ever-increasing, deepening intensity. The basic view underlying this practice was categorically opposed, she says, to the modern view. Humans were not meant to strive for freedom from pain. They were to use pain as a ladder to climb toward salvation. Salvation would indeed include freedom from pain, even pleasure, but that vision lay outside human reality. Cohen is certainly not wrong that modern medicine seems to want to eradicate pain, while medieval thinkers often viewed pain in a positive light. However, our assumptions about our assumptions about this um, modern atti- our assumption that this modern attitude is more enlightened deserves scre- scrutiny and rethinking, as the modern palliative care movement has been working to show over the past decades. One of the foundational texts of the movement is Eric Cassell's article entitled "The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine." In it, Cassell makes four points that are key for my reading of the Last Judgment poem. First. He argues that suffering is experienced by persons. And he defines persons as complex compositions of many elements, including but not limited to our relationships, our roles, familial and professional, and other, our personal and familial histories, our hopes, our expectations, and also our bodies. Suffering can be related to any of these aspects of personhood. And suffering often involves multiple aspects. Cassell firmly rejects the Cartesian mind-body dualism. Second, he maintains that suffering occurs when an impending destruction of the person is perceived. It continues until the disintegration has passed or the integrity of the person can be restored in some other manner. Although Cassell's primary interest in suffering is related um, to ongoing pain, this definition is certainly very applicable to the suffering involved in thinking about our mortality, the quintessential impending destruction of the person. His third point that I'd like to highlight is that pain and suffering are distinct ideas, although we often say pain and suffering as if they were one thing. Pain only causes suffering, according to Cassell, when it involves a perceived threat to the wholeness of the person. Thus, for example, the pain involved in childbirth, he says, can be extremely severe and yet considered rewarding. The perceived meaning of the pain influences the amount of medication that will be required to control it. Fourth, since pain and suffering are separate, Cassell proposes that suffering can be relieved in the presence of continued pain by making the source of the pain known, changing its meaning, and demonstrating that it can be controlled and an end is in sight. 
In discussing the ways of ameliorating suffering, he gives particular emphasis to the importance of identifying and taking control of meaning of a threat or injury. He addresses the ability of people to change the experience of pain by changing the pain's meaning, for example, seeing pain as an opportunity for growth. In my remaining time, I will attempt to prove that the last judgment poem, like Cassell, is very concerned with the suffering that occurs when the impending destruction of the person is perceived, and that the anonymous poet endeavors to relieve the reader's suffering through the, self, the same strategies, that is, making the source of the pain known, changing its meaning, and demonstrating that it can be controlled and that an end is in sight. I'll focus on three examples that show how the poet uses these same techniques to deal with different threats of destruction or fears about death. First, the destruction of the physical body. Second, the separation of the body from the soul. And third, the destruction of the soul. And I'll use the term soul because that's what the poet uses, but as you'll see, it's a word that often overlaps with Cassell's idea of personhood, um, the different aspects that are non-physical what we are beyond just bodies, basically. That the destruction of the body is a primary concern of the poet is clear from the swiftness with which he takes the topic up. After the prologue, he proposes to talk about the great day of judgment, but he immediately digresses. He digresses throughout the poem. Onto the subject of pride as the reason for amassing fine clothes and wealth. And from there to the idea that we can't take all these possessions with us, when instead we will just be wrapped in a shroud and dumped in the ground to romp. Less than 30 lines after the prologue, we have already arrived at the threat of the body's disintegration. The poet's evocation of what actually happens to the buried body does not mince words. The body will be wrapped in a miserable shroud. It will be thrown in the earth to some poor worms who will eat the flesh and slice it right through. And indeed, they will gnaw on the eyes and the mouth and the face. Worldly pride is worth little in the end. We can see that the poet is identifying why we find the thought of fleshly corruptibility painful. He highlights very delicate and sensitive body parts that are also those most likely used to identify the individual. The verbs gnaw and eat further identify sources of pain in the image. When creatures gnaw on us, we feel pain. And lastly, it's worth noting that the idea of slicing right through seems to epitomize utter destruction for this poet. It's a theme that returns later to express various forms of disintegration, as we will see. So how does the poet reduce the suffering associated with this gruesome idea? Just as Cassell proposes, the medieval poet suggests a way to change how we think about the source of the pain. Although the word angoisse, or agony, appears in one form or another over 20 times in the course of the poem, and dolor, pain, nearly 40 times, or once every 10 lines, neither is linked to the physical body, with one exception, as we'll see shortly. The body appears throughout as an inanimate object, which, without the soul, cannot feel pain, fear, suffering, or any other disagreeable sensation. The meaning of being gnawed by worms thus changes, when we have the chance to think about it, from painful experience to painless and inevitable event. Also, as Cassell suggests, the poet shows that the potential source of pain is controllable and has an end. For him, the disintegration of the body is only temporary, since, as he says, your flesh and your spirit will come back together at the judgment day. He provides no description of what the flesh might look like at that point. It's no longer a source of fear or pain. So much for the disintegration of the body. 
As for the disintegration of the bond between the body and soul, the poet shows that, like the corruption of the dead flesh, it is inevitable, but unlike the destruction of the body, it is a mysterious source of pain. In the three descriptions of the agony of the soul departing the body, the specific cause of suffering remains vague. And I'll just look at one of them. Man lives as long in this world as it pleases God, and when death takes him, the body agonizes so much that the veins of his heart split right through. The heart feels great agony when the soul must leave it. The agony is related to physical damage, but notably, the agony causes the damage rather than resulting from it. Because the body is in agony, the veins split right through, of course, and then it is the heart that feels great agony. The poet never does define the source of this suffering, for it, but it becomes clear that the agony is a defining feature of human existence. At the end of the poem, Christ himself says, my body had great agony when my soul had to leave it. This agony is real, unlike the imagined agony of the rotting body, which the poet sets aside as an empty fear. But the poet nonetheless offers consolation. First, by presenting this suffering as brief. It only occurs at the moment of death. And second, by showing the agony to be meaningful. The poet links the agony in, to the theme of the human debt to God, as we see in the lines surrounding this reference to Christ's suffering. See here the wounds that I endured for you. My palms and my feet pierced through the middle. My, agony, my body had great agony when my soul had to leave it. I endured this for you. What have you endured for me? The brief agony of death becomes something that the dying Christian can endure as a sign of gratitude toward God, or at the very least, as a sign of the acceptance of God's will. As we saw a moment ago, the poet presents human death as the will of God, so a dying person's resistance to it is prideful rejection of God's will. Cassell hints that the love involved in childbirth can reduce the mother's suffering, and similarly, the poet suggests that if a person understands the inevitable agony of death as a gift willingly offered to God, the pain of death is reduced because it takes on positive meaning. Rather than passively suffering, the dying person now has an active role in the process, which provides some measure, at least, of control. For Christians, the idea of the debt to God adds a further positive meaning to the death agony since by dying willingly, Christians achieve salvation, eternal freedom from pain in heaven. The last source of suffering I will discuss today, unlike the preceding agonies, can be avoided, you'll be happy to hear. And it is this agony that occupies most of the poet's attention throughout the poem on the Last Judgment. The poet clearly shows that the agony of souls after death is something that the living have control over, since good souls who leave the body don't encounter further difficulties. Bad souls, however, <laughs> will suffer. Rather than going into detail about the variety of subtle ways that the poet addresses potential fears about hell, I'll give a couple of examples of how he changes the meaning of the pain related to the fear of hell and offers strategies to control and even avoid the threat. The poem's first evocation of the horrors of hell, as it turns out, comes out of the mouths of demons. Before the soul ever experiences hell, the devils who come to drag it out of the body at death describe the waiting trials. And no, this image is not from Canonici Miscellaneous 74, but it is a typical image um, in 12th and 13th, especially 13th century manuscripts of what happens at death when either demons or demons and angels, or sometimes just angels, come to gather the soul from the dying body. So the torments that the demons, suggest, that the demons describe are endless punishments and torments 
great hunger and great thirst, and paradoxically not only fire, but also snow and frost and painful sleet. All of this framed by the repeated phrase, you will not lack for agonies. Here and in subsequent depictions of the torments, the soul has a bodily existence threatened by dangers that do physical harm. The potential disintegration of the soul is at stake, although eternal, it never is actually disintegrated. The soul's immediate response to this threat is to lash out against the body in great anger. Very significantly, the soul says to the body, body, cursed be you just as God made you and your eye and your hands and your mouth and your face, since you have worked it and caused it to happen that I will go to hell, the dolorous land. Never was it I who did evil or deserved it, dear God. This reaction of the soul to the demon's description of hell shows, because hell is being described by demons, that the fear of hell at death can lead to temptation toward multiple sins. First, cursing the body as God made it is, of course, blasphemous. But then, too, so is the idea that the soul will be punished undeservedly, which also reflects the sin of pride, resistance to God's will. Although subsequent passages show that the devils aren't exactly lying about the horrors of hell, this initial treatment of them suggests that the torments are, first and foremost, simply ideas with an influence over a person's postmortem fate. If the torments of hell can be a temptation toward blasphemy and pride, they can also, in the poem, serve as a prompt to understand what actions lead a soul to hell and then, of course, to avoid those actions. The goal, of course, is to make the soul truly undeserving of punishment and deserving of eternal rewards. The poet identifies the sins that have earned the damned soul its place in hell as activities that are, in fact, easily changed, and I think equally objectionable to most modern readers, namely, not giving charity to the poor, or having mercy on them. And that's pretty much it. Like a refrain, the poet repeats three times variations on the line, never had charity or mercy toward the poor, and three more times variations, even further variations on that theme. Toward the end of the poem, he remarks, in the prison of hell, there are so many false Christians who have not served God with the riches that they had and the amassed goods, which they should have given to the poor and beggars. They will have many agonies. It's clear throughout that the poet is not advocating an ascetic life for everyone or even an exceptionally virtuous life, rather a simple sharing of wealth to reduce suffering on earth. He conveys a strong sense of justice. Those who do not reduce worldly suffering will suffer in hell. But conversely, those who do show charity and mercy toward the poor will receive God's mercy after death. If we return to the threatened terrors of hell we see that they're largely the torments that the homeless and indigent suffer every day in this life. Hell's torments for this poet are an invitation to empathize with terrestrial sufferers as well as an incentive to reduce their agony. Charitable and uncharitable people alike may suffer the agony of this body and soul separation, but the charitable, according to our poet, can be confident that their agony will end there. To summarize briefly, then, the poem on the Last Judgment addresses three fears about death, the decay of the body, the separation of the body and soul, and the torments of hell. As Eric Cassell prescribes, the poet provides his audience first with a clear articulation of each fear, then with ways of rethinking each fear to gain control of it, and last with reassurance that the cause of fear either will not last long or can be avoided altogether. It's obvious that the poet sees a certain amount of pain, fear, suffering, 
as inevitable in human life, and the attempt to avoid all pain as a willful resistance to reality that only leads to further agony. However, it's also clear that the poet wants to reduce his audiences and his community's sufferings as much as possible in this life as well as in the next. Pache, Cohen, and Campbell, the text does not treat all pain as necessary punishment. By placing the Last Judgment poem at the end of the volume, the compiler of the Canonici Anthology suggests that the word work, as I mentioned earlier, can serve as a commentary on the preceding saints' lives. Indeed, the tools that the Last Judgment poet offers his audience for overcoming the sufferings of their mortality echo elements of the saints' lives in the volume. Alexis gives all his wealth away to the poor. Euphrosyne provides mercy to her suffering father, and both she and her father are very generous um, in, su in supporting the poor in, in their community of Alexandria. The martyrs offer their lives as repayment for Christ's sacrifice. Notably, the life of St. Andrew, which the compiler has placed directly before the poem on the Last Judgment, includes in its prologue a lengthy discussion of how all people can achieve martyrdom simply through their daily pains, whether small or significant. In fact, this poet claims that you will never see the light of God if your body is not martyred, either on the outside or the inside. For know this, in two ways can we endure martyrdom, either in the body or in the courage, which can be translated as heart or mind. Um, that doesn't have a direct translation. We will be martyrs in our thoughts or minds if we endure good and ill equally, if we do good to those who do us harm, if we endure everything with patience, let us be loyal and tell the truth, love chastity and charity. Let us drive out from our hearts hatred, envy, adultery, and homicide. If we truly love, live thus, we will be spiritual martyrs. And he goes on to list, but much more briefly, the various tortured deaths of early martyrs, suggesting through the parallel that the patient acceptance of sickness, for example, is equal to the martyr's acceptance of dismemberment. Of course, the list of virtuous acts he proposes to his audience is quite a lot longer than that of the last judgment poet. I didn't even cite half of them. So he sets the bar for salvation very high. The last judgment poet enlarges this idea that the heroic virtues of the saints are within his audience's reach by showing that all souls are worthy of depiction in heroic verse and all people are capable of becoming the heroes of their own deaths simply by being merciful and charitable toward others and by accepting the inevitability of death. The compiler, by placing the last judgment poem after Andrew, confirms this more accessible idea of virtue and more hopeful view of humanity. This hopeful vision is, after all, what concludes the volume. Moreover, by selecting a majority of confessors' stories, the tales of saints who typically live long lives and die naturally and peacefully, and just two martyrs' stories, although people tend to think that the Middle Ages liked martyrs' stories better than confessors. This volume would tend to suggest, at least for this population, otherwise. Um, and with the martyrs' lives, it's interesting that in the rubrics, they're identified as lives, the life of St. Julian and the life of St. Andrew the Apostle, not the passion, not the death, um, but the life of the saint. With these selections and these, um, these rubrics, the compiler creates a balance and a continuity in the volume between living well and dying well. Death is just, in the end, part of life, but a necessary part if we want the full story. The compiler almost seems to be responding directly to a modern sense of the shortcomings of current medical care. 
eloquently expressed for just one example by the journalist Amanda Bennett when she speaks of the experience of losing her husband to cancer. She says, maybe we need a new story. We have a noble path to curing a disease, patients and doctors alike. But there doesn't seem to be a noble path to dying. Dying is seen as failing. And we had a heroic narrative for fighting together, but we didn't have a heroic narrative for letting go. So maybe we need a narrative for acknowledging the end and for saying goodbye. And maybe our new story will be about a hero's fight and a hero's goodbye. I hope to have shown that medieval people shared this need for stories about our mortality and that the compiler of the Bodleian Library's Canonici Miscellaneous 74 provided a response by binding together the Last Judgment poem with stories of the heroic lives and deaths of saints. And even though our Last Judgment poet expresses his ideas in very Christian terms, I wonder if his practicality about the post-mortem fate of bodies his thoughtfulness about the power of willingly accepting the inevitable inevitability of death, and his generosity about finding peace by doing good to others who suffer. I wonder if these perspectives can't also help any modern person, whether Christian or not, to reduce the suffering of mortality that, after all, defines all of us as human. Thank you. I've been told it's customary to take questions, so I'll be happy to, to take questions. Anyone has them? Yes. Thank you very much. Um, actually, I'm just curious if you could read some of the poem or some of the, the lines, because I don't speak French, and I would love to hear them. Yes. Um, well, I'll give you the one, not, not these perhaps, but uh, the one I know best is a Frisine. Um, Euphrosyne in English, but Euphrosyne in French. Nova chanson vous dîmes de belle antiquité. It's pretty close to modern French, but um, there are a couple differences. Yeah, and it's we don't really know how it was pronounced. It's a reconstruction, but yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this reminded me a lot of the the I think it's a very that's a very interesting question, and um, a number of the ideas that I'm finding in this manuscript are very consonant with Augustinian and even Aristotelian ideas. Which it's hard to know how they how they came to this, but um, about the the body and how it experiences pain, and the mind and how it experiences pain. And at the same time, these texts are very entertaining. Um, it's not, this isn't, this isn't dry material at all. It's not, it doesn't require um, deep interest. And it's very aware of an audience that likes descriptions of fancy clothes and, um, you know, wants to know about the human side of the saints and their relationships with their families. Um, so I think it's it's probably written by somebody who has thought deeply about the philosophical tradition 
but it's not requiring that of its audience. And yet it's, it's there too. I've, I've argued elsewhere that I think live, the wonderful thing about science lives is that they're written, the ones in the, in the 12th and 13th century in France, are written in ways that you can appreciate at different levels. They're, they're very dramatic entertainment and at the same time, when you start thinking about the way, what the saints actually say to each other, there are discourses that are quite theological, um, but never so long that you lose people's attention who don't want to listen to that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interplay. And, and that's, as I said earlier, these lives are very much at the intersection of different populations who have different interests and are, are finding common ground. I hope that answered your question. Yes. I'm curious whether purgatory ever gets mentioned in the poems. Does that come up at all as a topic or an option for approaching death? So Jacques Le Goff argued that purgatory was invented in the twelfth century, and one of the intriguing, frustrating things about the text in this in this um, in this volume is that they're not dated. Um, so it's sometime in the 12th century for most of them. Most people argue that most of the texts, aside from the um, the moral poem, are or and the the um, last judgment poem, are at the end of the 12th century. So you would think that there would be more of an acknowledgement, but it's not there. Um, there there are multiple references to the last judgment throughout, um, but no indication of a belief in purgatory that I've found so far. I think that's, yeah. So. Also, they're all set in the, all of the, the lives are, I don't know if you noticed, they're almost all Egyptian, um, and they're Eastern Mediterranean, um, largely Egyptian, and they're all set in the early days of Christianity, so by the 6th century, which I don't know if that plays into it or, or not, but these are mostly translations of earlier lives that would not have had mentions of purgatory in them. Although the, the Verde de Juiz is not a translation, as I mentioned. Yeah. I think there are a lot of things that happen at the end of the Middle Ages into the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries that um, can be seen as moments of, uh, of thinking about, a move to thinking about pain differently. Um, and as I mentioned, Cassell talks about Descartes as one example, um, but also the division between what medicine was allowed to do and what the church and um, both priests and ministers took care of became much more divided 
after the 16th century. So that's part of it too, that their spiritual care is not part of medicine traditionally. Um, and of course that leads to a problem when, like Cassell, as Cassell points out, the person is not separable into these different parts. I mean, like, I put them in their own little circles, but they're all really overlapping. Um, and so we see, um, he talks about how various ailments that should cause pain don't, or a lack of ailment can cause physical pain because some other part of the, the person is, is threatened with destruction. So, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, actually, the, 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 the ideas about childbirth that I was talking about today are, um, are, are all modern. It's, it's Cassell and others. But, but um, I've worked on St. Margaret a lot, who was invoked in childbirth. And, um, and it's very clear. And, of course, she's a virgin martyr. And for a long time, people said, well, why is a virgin martyr being... Um, invoked in childbirth, one who dies young and blah, 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 ignoring, of course, the fact that the Virgin Mary is also a mother. Um, but but in, in, Margaret, in Margaret's case, she's not a mother. But the whole idea is that she undergoes extraordinarily painful martyrdom. And the fact that her life was so popular among women... Um, and among men too, but, but particularly among women in childbirth, is an indication of ways in which medieval people saw pain, handled pain, by um, invoking these stories of martyrs. So going through labor is like Margaret going through um, her martyrdom. And when you can invest it with a positive meaning like that, it becomes perhaps more manageable. Um, Cassell would say. So in terms of this volume, which does not have a life of St. Margaret, but uh, you're right, has a majority of lives of, of women. Um, it's complicated. Um, I skipped over a part of the Last Judgment poem that I still don't quite know what to do with, which is a little misogynist passage at the beginning. The, the whole thing about clothing and vanity is general, but then it gets attached to women. You know, women particularly like nice clothes, so, you know, they should pay attention. It's not, it's, as, as, as such criticisms go, it's pretty soft-hitting. It's, 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 not, it's not particularly painful, but I do think there are a couple of other passages um, in the, the moral poem that identify women's interests. So I think women were definitely part of the audience. Maybe the majority of the audience. I mean, if you look at um, the beginning poem, the, the beginning section of 
the manuscript. Um, It has the, the first section has two male saints and two female saints because there are there's a male and a female saint in the moral poem. Um, but then when the compiler decided to put in Euphrosyne and Mary the Egyptian, it really changes the balance um, of the of the of the volume. So I I do think there's a good chance that this was made for potentially for for young women in a convent school. Um, as I said, there's a, there's a lot of emphasis, not just in the, in the Last Judgment poem, but in other texts about giving, to the, giving charity. And I don't think that was probably intended... F- I, I, to me, that, that says a secular audience um, who would be in the position to give charity individually, as opposed to nuns or monks um, who, who would, as a group, um, be engaged in charitable acts, but not as individuals. We will be able not to give charity, but to give our further applause to Professor Ogden in one moment. I'd like to introduce all of you to the important notion of having a collation together downstairs. Not that kind of collation, not a Billy Grassley collation, but a food and drink collation in the reception area of Rare Book School to congratulate our speaker and continue the conversation with Professor Ogden. Let us offer her our thanks now.